morning. If you would, turn your Bibles to the book of Joel. As I mentioned the last time I preached, I felt this was where the Lord was leading me. It is indeed where I am. And so I am in need of your prayers. This is, I would... I would guess that this is probably much more unfamiliar territory to each of you than the book of Galatians was, and it certainly is to me. So I am in need of God's grace and mercy to preach through this book. So um, we are going to start the book of Joel. If you would, go to the Lord in prayer with me. Father, I thank you, God, for this beautiful day you've given us and for allowing us to gather here in your name and worship you. I thank you for Brother Paul and the message that he brought and the amazing way that you have used typologies throughout Scripture to teach us, to demonstrate things to us, the amazing um, just revelation it is when you see those pictures and that it all points back to you, to Christ. Lord, I pray that as we look at the same thing here in the book of Joel, that Christ would be magnified, that your scriptures, your word would be held high, and that you would guide me as I speak, that you would give me the words to say by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at the book of Joel, the, the introduction will not take a real long time. And that's because there's very little known about the background of this particular book. It is considered one of the minor prophets. And just so you know, this is one of those things that we don't want to assume anybody knows things. So there's there's two, the prophets in the Bible are broken up into two sections, the major prophets and the minor prophets. The only reason they're called that is because of the length of the books. So this is one of the small Prophets, as far as the length of the book. So that's the only reason it's called the minor prophet, but it is that. We will see four matters covered by this book. If you kind of break it down into four main things, first we're going to see the certainty of God's judgments. We're going to see the certainty of God's judgments. He will judge his people, and he will judge the world. We're going to see that through the book of Joel. We are going to see the prominence of the day of the Lord in the purposes and plans of God. That is a theme that we will see throughout the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. And so we're going to get into that and what that is. We're going to hopefully come out the other side of this with a better, better understanding of what is meant by the day of the Lord. We will see the divine summons to repentance, a call to repentance. That's the purpose of the judgment, is to bring his people back to him, to turn them around, to change their direction, bring them back to him. And then we will see the blessing of the Lord and the renewal of the earth by the outpouring of his spirit on men and women. With repentance comes blessing. We will see that. So when we look at the author, Joel, um, very little is known about him. We know from the first verse that he is the son of Bethuel, 
and very little is known about him as well. So there's not much to know about the background of Joel. We do know that his name means the Lord is God, but that's, that's basically it. There's not a lot of background about the man Joel. The timing of the book is greatly debated, and there's very little given within the book to know exactly when it was written. And so, um, basically it could have been anywhere from about the 5th century B.C. to the 9th century B.C. And I'm not going to pretend like I have any more insight than all the guys that are arguing about it and have been arguing about it for years. I will say this, Calvin said, but as there is no certainty, it is better to leave the time in which he taught undecided. And so, that's the introduction. It's pretty short compared to how we introduce most books, but that's, there's just not a lot of information known. But I am going to talk a little bit more about the lack of knowledge as we get into this first verse. So look at Joel 1, 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And there's... This is where we have to slow down when we read the scriptures. We have to stop and think. The word of the Lord came to Joel. The more literal translation of that is that the word of the Lord was to Joel. And it is important, extremely important, especially now, to note that Joel, the word is not Joel's. Okay? The argument that you will get into when you talk to people who are unbelievers and skeptics is, well, that's just a book written by men. No, it's not. It's not just a book written by men. It is a book penned by men. They were the instrument that God used to put it on paper, yes, but this is the word of the Lord. It was to Joel. It was revealed to Joel supernaturally revealed to Joel. Joel is speaking for God here. He is God's spokesman. God's word has always came by divine initiative. And with that in mind, turn over to Exodus. Chapter 19. Exodus 19 and starting in verse 16. This is when Moses is going up on Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. This is, this is when he is receiving the word of God. And look at how it comes down in verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. That was the response of God's creation when he was bringing down the law. That was the response of God's creation when he 
was delivering his word to the children of Israel. And this book is no different than that. And we should be hearing it. We should approach it with the same awe that the children of Israel would have had standing there watching the mountain tremble. And as we, as we go through this book, we're going to see God's control over his creation. It's like Paul preached last week. He didn't just wind up a clock and let it go. He is in control. He maintains control. He is sovereign over his creation. So when something happens in nature, it's not just a random chance of nature. No, he has a purpose in all things. And it's important that we realize this because I believe we're seeing it today in a lot of different ways. The same as Joel, the people in Joel's time was seeing it. So now we know that so the word of the God is coming from Joel. We know little about Joel, only that he is a voice crying in the wilderness. And there's a reason for this. There's, I believe there's a reason that Joel is not well known. And that is that the reader's concentration will be focused on the message and not the man. And this needs to be a great reminder to us in these times. This needs to be a great reminder to us today, both the preacher and the hearer. And you guys, unless you haven't been paying a lot of attention to what's going around us, it seems like preachers are falling right and left. What we thought were men of God are collapsing in sin and despair. There's one recently here in Ada that is just absolutely incredible, surprising, shocking, and yet not that surprising and shocking if we look at what really is in man's heart. But we need to focus on the message. We need to focus on the Word of God, not the one delivering the message. Let us always strive to preach it that way. To write it that way. When we, as Christians, when we post on social media, when we talk to our friends, when we write a letter, when we write a book, when we preach, when we stand at the pulpit and preach, when we go on the street and preach, if we do anything as we're speaking for God, let us point it to the Scripture. Let us, let us make our readers, our hearers, our friends, our family know Christ. And let our names be forgotten. That's why I think God has not told us anything about Joel. The message is not about Joel. The message is about Christ. And now look at verse 2. He says, Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? The prophecy here shows who Joel is talking to. Who is he directly talking to? He names two people, two groups of people. The first is the elders of Israel. He's he's talking about, we're getting ahead. As you go down in in verse 4, we're going to see that he's talking about a swarm of locusts. He's talking about judgment coming on the land of Israel. But he's talking first to the elders. 
And this is due to the fact that the elders should have experienced the most kinds of human situations. And as we go through this and we look at the elders of Israel, we should have a comparison of the elders of a church. As we look at the inhabitants of Israel, we'll have a comparison of the congregation of the body of Christ. And the elders should have experienced the most kinds of human situations. And it's true. I I did not understand that when I became an elder. I did not understand that you will have experiences that nobody else has. You, when you're not an elder, you think you understand what they're going through. It's kind of like many of you have children, and you think you know what it's going to be like when that baby comes. You have it in your head. You have it all. Many of us have made comments about, well, if that was my kid, this is that, that they'd never act like that. All those things, right? And then the child comes, and it is nothing like you thought. And it is both much more wonderful than you could ever imagine, and in ways much more difficult than you could ever imagine. It's kind of that way when I became an elder. I thought I had an idea of what it's like, but there's all kinds of situations that come up that we know about that other people don't. And so we have an experience in ways that... The congregation doesn't. It was the same way in Israel, the elders, and plus they had been around longer. Obviously, the longer you've been on this earth, the more experience you have, right? So he's talking to even just older people. But in this case, he said, have you ever experienced anything like this? And as we look at that, the elders of a church, um, we can also... The attitude of the elders of a church towards God's word will also have a direct impact of how receptive the congregation is to his word. And I I actually think, sadly, we can see that there have been many fires quenched by a lack of excitement of pastors over God's word. And that is extremely, that is, a, that is an indictment on the church, on churches today, is if somebody gets excited, somebody finds some parts of Scripture and they get excited about it and they want to talk about it and it gets, it's just like, wow, calm down a little. You know, or they want to, they bring it to their pastor and they say, hey, we want to have a Bible study and let's do this and this and this and the pastor is just too busy or just... You know, got too many other things going on, too many programs, this and that. Or somebody wants to teach, and it's not put forward. There's lots of ways that this has happened, but the the attitude of the elders of a church, and you can see this anywhere you go, in any kind of body of Christ, in any kind of local congregation, if the pastors are holding, pastor in most cases, are holding the Word of God in extremely high esteem, so will the congregation. And so that's something, uh, if you're ever looking for a church, if you're trying to find a place to, to be in a congregation, that's, that's the thing that I always say the most when people leave here and they're going somewhere else. Look to see how they treat the Word of God. Look to see where they hold it. Is it held in high esteem or is it put on a shelf? Is the, are the sermons... In general, 
pointing to the Word of God? Are they going through Scripture? Are they expositing Scripture? Or are they anecdotal with stories and feel-good messages? What do the elders lead to? You know, today, there's, there's a name for today. Did you all know that? It's Palm Sunday, right? Today is Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter. So Palm Sunday is called that because that's the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. This is an amazing thing when we look at the elders of Jerusalem, the elders of Israel that Joel is talking to. When Jesus rode in, what did the common people do? They laid down palm branches. They yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna. They worshipped him because he was worthy of worship. They worshipped him for who he was. He was the Messiah. He was the king of kings coming in on a colt, coming in on a donkey. And they, they laid down the palm branches. And what happened just a few days later? What did the leaders do? They quenched it. They quenched that fire. They quenched that desire. They quenched that truth that was coming in the people. And so as we look at the parallels here, it is is extremely important. And this is coming to us. This is coming to me. This prophecy is directed to us first as elders. And it means that we do have double accountability in handling it and responding to it. Which is why when I started, I said I need your prayers. I I really need your prayers because this is, I I am not as familiar with this text. I'm not as familiar with the minor prophets, with the Old Testament prophets. And I want and I pray to God that I handle it correctly when delivering it to you. However, it is also clear there So he says, hear this, you elders, and give ear. And then he says, all you inhabitants of the land. So it is clear that the word of God also comes to all of Israel. It comes to every inhabitant. All the people have sole responsibility to listen to God's word for themselves. So I don't care. It is true that if if you're in a church and the elders are falling short in the word of God, it is true that that is... That is going double accountability on them, but it does not relieve you from your shortcomings and failures. You cannot blame those on the elders. You're responsible for yourself because the word of God has been delivered to the elders first, but then to the whole congregation. Those fires that were quenched are sad because the leadership should have been fueling them, but the individuals let them die as well. And he says, nothing like this has ever happened. He says, or he's asking it in a rhetorical question, but basically the answer is no, nothing like this has ever happened. He's using this natural disaster. They've never seen anything like it to show, I am about to give you a message like you have never heard. Look at verse 3. Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. And this demonstrates two things. First, the importance of the message. 
this is not to die. This is not a one-time letter I'm giving you. You take it and it's for you and then it goes away. No, this is for you, your children, and your children's children. This also tells us how information was shared then. Your sons need to know, your grandchildren, pass this down from generation to generation. And it's not just the elders that are to spread this message, but everyone is to spread this message. You know, I was, uh, years ago, it's been a long time ago, I, I, I teach school, if you don't know, I teach a high school, and I got the opportunity one time to really share the gospel with a class. And they were probably the, well, not, not probably, they were the roughest, worst class of students I've ever had, and I've been doing this 19 years. But we always kind of got each other. They, they had a respect for me. Um, but anyway, I got to share the gospel with them, and I was going through it with, I mean, I was just really laying it out there, giving examples, and really trying to break it down. And they're like, they go, wow, you should be a pastor or something, which I was not at the time, which turns out they were prophets, I guess. But I remember thinking, and I actually told them, I said, no, I said, everybody that can share the gospel is not supposed to be a preacher, not at the pulpit, not supposed to be a pastor. All I was doing and all I thought I was doing at the time was obeying the word of God and proclaiming the gospel. It's not just for the preachers. You need to be able to preach the gospel. You need to be able to do it to your children first. Husbands, you need to be able to disciple your wives. Families, you need to be able to disciple your children. You need to be able to take it to your other extended family. Your friends, people you come across in the streets or in the airport or on a plane or in an elevator. You need to be ready always to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. That is on each and every one of us. And praise God that we have men here all throughout our congregation. We have women here all throughout our con- con- congregation that do that, that understand that, that study so that they can do that. And I'm very thankful for that. We also have men here who will stand and teach us how to do that and encourage us to do that. But that's how the message was to be shared. Tell your sons about it. It's not just the elders. Everyone is to spread this message. Everyone is to tell their kids about it so that when these things come to pass, they'll know it. It's an enduring message. Joel is saying this is for all generations. And as you'll see as we go through the book of Joel, its relevance has not changed. And we will see that I think it is just as relevant today as it was when Joel preached it then, whenever it was. Verse 4. This is where he describes what is going on in Israel. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. And most of you probably remember God's plague in Egypt of locusts. I think about that when I see a bunch, when we have a mini plague here. As God once plagued the persecutors of God's people in Egypt with locusts, he now plagues his own people in a similar way. 
And he gives us a description of what's going on. He he uses four different words for locusts here. And it seems to be a progression of the plague. It could be, it could be different phases in the locust life cycle that he's seeing, or it could be four different types of locusts. It really doesn't matter. The point here is that they're everywhere. I think it was about five years ago, maybe six. We had the real, real hot summers, a couple of them in a row. And we had a mini locust plague. I don't know if you guys remember it. I still have holes in the screens at my house where they were eating the screens. So you could see, you could kind of get an idea of how much damage they could do. I talked to the extension agents, and they were actually, at that time, we were, when I say locusts, it's more of a grasshopper type. For us, we would call them grasshoppers here. And at that time, the grasshoppers were eating a third of the forage in pastures. A third. And that was not anything like what we're seeing here. You could find trees and they would be completely, it would look like the tree was thicker than it was because it was completely covered with grasshoppers. And they would, they ate the bark completely off the trees and the trees would die. That was going on in 2000, I think it was 15, 14, somewhere in there. This was way worse than that. He gives four different types of locusts. And so basically, Whatever it was, there was nothing left. When a plague like that comes through, and actually in Africa in 2019, they were seeing plagues of biblical proportions very similar to this. Um, and they were, there was just nothing green left when they would come through. Here, here's, a, here's a description um, about desert locusts that I think it's important for us to understand just how detrimental this was. On the society, it says desert locusts have often been called the world's most devastating pests, and for good reason. Swarms form when locust numbers increase and they become crowded, and this causes a switch from a relatively harmless solitary phase to a sociable phase. In this phase, the insects are able to multiply 20-fold in three months and reach densities of 80 million per square mile. Okay, so they, when they get too concentrated, they start, it's like it's the opposite of what it seems like nature should do. And I think this is because this has been developed as a plague from God. It's a judgment on the cursed earth that he gives. And when he does this, they, they start breeding 20 times what they would. And 80 million grasshoppers per square mile. Each grasshopper can consume two grams of vegetation every day. So combined, a swarm of 80 million grasshoppers, locusts, can consume food equivalent to that eaten by 35,000 people a day. That is detrimental. That is tsunami-type destruction just by insects. You think God can't control his creation And this is detrimental to any society. It is farmers losing entire crops, and in many cases, several years' worth of crops. See, so the agriculturalist in me has to bring this stuff out. It makes, I think, probably farther into this than somebody that's not around agriculture, especially in that time period. See, we, we, we just recently experienced um, cold 
that has never been seen before in Oklahoma. You guys have went through a plague of sorts. And what most people don't realize is we're two years, at least, in agriculture recovering from that cold. I just found out about three weeks ago, most, and if you produce cattle, this is a major problem, but a large uh, percentage of the bulls went sterile during that cold because it got so cold they cannot reproduce anymore. If the bulls are sterile, the cows don't do a lot of good. I know this is weird in this time where things can identify as other things, but in agriculture it doesn't work that way. Still got to have a pink one and a blue one, right? If you don't have bulls, cows can't get bred, and we don't have any calves. Guess what that does to meat? That's going to, so be ready. Meat prices are going to go up. That's two years away. You can raise a, if you have a baby bull now that is still good, he's two years away from producing. The peach trees in Stratford were known for peaches, right? They didn't even bloom this year. Usually you worry about once they bloom, if it gets too cold, it'll freeze the blooms off. You can try to put some heat on them and save some of them. No, this year they didn't even bloom because it got so cold in their dormant stage, it killed the blooms before they came out. That's a full year gone, and who knows if they'll recover next year. We don't know. We've never had this kind of cold before. When you look at this kind of detriment, it goes on and on. Think about this. You got a barley crop. You got a wheat crop. The locusts come in. What are they going to do? They're going to destroy the entire thing. They eat it all. So that year's crop is gone. Here's the problem. Where do you get your seed for the next year's crop? You save it from that, from this year's crop. So now you don't have seed for next year's crop. What are you going to do? This is not just a, hey, this is going to make us hungry for a couple weeks. This could destroy the entire society, right? If locusts swarm into a vineyard or an olive orchard that was popular in in Israel in that time, they destroy years and years and years of labor. You don't plant a vineyard and get get a crop of grapes that year. You don't plant an olive tree and get a crop that year. It takes three to seven years to get anything from any of that, and they just killed it all. Skip skip down to verse 10 and look at what it says. The field is wasted. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers, well, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree was withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. There is nothing left. See, we can go, we can ship peaches in from Mexico and still have peaches, right? We can pay a little more and we can still eat beef. Or we can switch to chicken or pork and there will be food available. We have modern times and it makes it a lot easier to deal with these disasters. They didn't have that. When these things came through, it was detrimental. 
And so the, the judgment then is not just on the farmers. It extends to everyone. It comes in a form of hunger. But the judgment begins with God's people. He has and always will chastise his people to bring them to repentance. We, we have to have a balance because we rightly say that God's people, if you're in Christ, will not withstand eternal judgment. Absolutely not. You cannot. He has paid the penalty for us. Christ has. But that does not mean that you will not receive discipline. That does not mean you will not receive chastisement from our Lord. He chastises. He disciplines. The same way that we discipline our children in a loving way to correct them and bring them back on a path, God will do for his people. And these natural disasters may very well be that. He may start in the natural realm. Because in reality, he is the one who causes his creation to go into calamity. Right? And so when people, I remember when the tsunami hit several years ago, and it was absolutely detrimental. One of the worst natural disasters we had ever seen. And people were asking, well, is that judgment? Is that God's judgment? Absolutely. Absolutely it's God's judgment. Whether it's direct or indirect, it's all part of God's judgment because his judgment started when Adam and Eve fell in the garden and he cursed the earth. So yes, death is God's judgment. The coronavirus is God's judgment. The cold that we experienced a few weeks ago is God's judgment. Absolutely. So what we need to examine is, is it a direct judgment because of something we're doing? Or is it a direct judgment on the cursed earth in general? And if it very well could be that it's because of something we're doing. It very well could be that God is bringing judgment on the United States right now because the church has absolutely went off the rails. And if you haven't been paying a lot of attention, the church, and I use that in quotes, has actually went off the rails. We're seeing things that you never would have dreamed of seeing as far as people's theology, as far as what's being taught from pulpits. And so this judgment is very likely as a result of that. And eventually the judgment will move from plants to animals and ultimately to mankind. And if you look at, skip down to verse 12, we read the first part. The vine has dried up, the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. But here's what it looks like when God's judgment comes to people. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Man's judgment is seen particularly in the loss of joy. And here's the reality. I know there's people in here that have struggles in life right now, real struggles, financially, health-wise, lots of different things going on. And it could be that those struggles are being brought so that you can turn to Christ, 
so that he can draw you in. I know there's testimony after testimony after testimony of people that go through something extremely hard that they, they come out at the end of it and say, I'm so thankful I went through that because I know Christ better. Because through that, he really was carrying me. He was drawing me close. So when you go through those times and it feels like you're losing your joy, look to Christ and find your joy in Him. And so it's also important to note here, some of the some scholars um, don't believe the locusts are literal. It's been debated among the scholars, among the commentators, whether the locusts are literal. I am under the, the opinion that Joel is referring to a literal swarm or swarms of locusts that attacked Israel. Absolutely. It, it doesn't seem like there's any kind of literary vice here that says otherwise, right? Um, but I will also state as a fact that God can... And has many times used his power to bring natural phenomenon in order to demonstrate other spiritual truths, predictions, and warnings. And so we see the physical thing here. And if you were here for equipping hour, Paul did an excellent job of showing us typologies. Certainly this is more than just a bunch of grasshoppers eating the plants. Detrimental, yes, but that's a worldly thing. There is more to it than that. There is, it is a prediction of more judgment coming on Israel. Later on, we'll see the armies invade. And I think the, what we see here is the locust as a picture of the armies to come that invade Israel. And then they go to another, it's actually more predictive of later judgment that is going to be spiritual in nature, like we'll see in Revelation 9. The natural locusts in Egypt and in Joel take on apocalyptic proportions in Revelation. Their wings will sound like the thundering of horses' hooves. They bear teeth like a lion, and their tail has the sting of a scorpion. And the point of the comparison is this. These locusts, these natural locusts are terrible. Stealing all the food, all the livelihood, and the joy of man. But they pale in comparison to the judgment that is to come. Oh, let us have judgment now on the earth and not receive spiritual judgment. Let us have judgment now in the, on the fleshly things and let our souls be protected from God's true judgment that will come at the end. He will chastise his people. And it's, 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 it is so easy to see when you spank your kids, you should have a goal in mind. You're doing this so that you can keep them directed on a path so that they won't wind up completely lost and in detriment in life and separated from God. That's the reason you do that, right? It, it, it is an amazing thing when you see the results of sin on a life. 
a life of sin. I was, we were driving on the way to Oklahoma City. I've been up there at a livestock show and we were driving and we pulled up at a stoplight just getting off the interstate and there was a truck in front of us and we're just talking, you know, and this, this truck stops and the light's about to turn green and I see the door open and this lady gets out. She's, uh, you can just see death all over her. She obviously is um, on drugs, black eye, and she's, you know, things are just not right. She gets out in the middle of the road, runs around for a minute, and then jumps back in the truck and goes. And it was just like, good grief. Lord, help us. And we correct our children in prayer and hope that they don't wind up like that. And don't we welcome God's correction on us. That's that, that, the extreme that you can see with somebody. I, I have students that I've, there's, there's one in particular. I had her for maybe a year or two. She was like a junior when I started. So she's actually close to my age. When I see her, I don't even recognize her. She doesn't recognize me either because a life of drugs and just everything that's going on has just destroyed her. You can see an extreme there, but that is not even close. That pales in comparison to the extreme of God's chastisement of us and his judgment on the wicked in the end day, in the end time. And so I'll close with this. And it's, it's, a, it's a hard place to stop because next, the next time I preach, we'll see what should be our response to this judgment. But here's, here's the reality when it comes to judgment. Judgment ends with the calling of all nations of the world to account. And that's what we are to be doing at this time. That's what we're supposed to be doing as God's people. We're calling all nations, all people from every corner of the earth to God. We should be calling them to account. But listen to this. Judgment begins with the house of God. As believers, we are outside the ultimate judgment of God. We're outside the eternal judgment of God. Christ has protected us from that by receiving that on our behalf. That's what he did when he died on the cross. He took our place and received the judgment. However, we're not, side, we're not outside God's judgment completely. He will correct his children. And that's what I believe... We're seeing a lot in these churches. That's why we're seeing these men fall. That's why we're seeing sin in men's lives exposed. Why? Because they are not following the Word of God. They're not preaching the Word of God. They're not living the Word of God. They're living a lie. And God is exposing it in His church. And it may be that we see several churches, congregations, start to collapse. Or we may see God raising men up in those churches to bring them and to lead them in the knowledge of the truth so that they can go to the world and preach this message so that we can send people to this world. That's our job. Our job is to declare this message to the world so that they too can avoid the judgment. I mean, how absurd is it that we would 
receive the mercy, receive the grace, and then stay in our area and just talk about it. No, we have the answer. We have the gift of eternal life, and we can share it, and that's our job. And so let us take heed the warning that God has given his people, and let us turn to him and honor his wishes as we go forward. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again, Lord, and I, I ask for your grace. I ask for your guidance, Lord, as, as uh, we go through the book of Joel, as we go through your word that you delivered through Joel, Lord, that you would help us, help me to understand it so that I can teach it, open each of our eyes, open each of our hearts so that we can hear it, but most importantly, God, that we would apply it that we would apply it in our lives, that we could honor you. And I pray that now as we take communion, that we would be put in remembrance that you are coming back, that you're going to set this right, that you're going to make it right, and we're going to enjoy that time, Lord. I pray, God, that as we fellowship even over food, that you would bless that time, allow us to allow us to enjoy one another, enjoy the company, and then, God, I pray that you would send us out Send us divine appointments to share the gospel with others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.